Oh, this is going to be a good one. You're listening to Pete the Planner. This week on the Pete the Planner Show, we answer your money questions, but better yet, no, we don't. I asked the questions this week of presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend. He joins me now. Mayor Pete, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. It's good to be you. I've uh, I've listened to you in my ear for the last couple of days on your nine-hour audiobook, so I feel like you're somehow oh, Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder. Uh, um, I've had this long belief that presidential candidates and our, our government leaders sometimes don't have a finger on the pulse of what real Americans are going through financially. And, and, and so that's why I wanted to have you on today. And some things stuck out in your book. You, you have an $800 mortgage payment, <laughs> which uh, t- to me, I think is, is, is classic American financial lifestyle. You, you are a person that has an understated mortgage payment that allows you some financial freedom. And I just wonder, uh, of the people who've put their name in the, in the hat so far, how do you feel your story resonates with people from just a personal finance perspective? Uh, well, I mean, one thing I can say is that, you know, uh, Chasten and I live a pretty middle-class lifestyle in a middle-class neighborhood in, in middle America. Uh, you know, I certainly am I'm conscious of uh, the situation for people on the coast who have uh, uh, just spiraling uh, uh, housing costs uh, in the uh, uh, our part of the country, the the costs have uh, been a little more uh, flat, but you still have to work hard to to manage that and uh, for things to be affordable in our community. Uh, you know, one thing I think about a lot is that, uh, you know, we uh, uh, I was able to refinance uh, my house a few years after purchasing it to take advantage of lower interest rates. But uh, what we've not been able to do is do the same with uh, the student debt. That's also a very big part of our uh, our finances because of uh, Chaston's. Uh, uh, studies that uh, he undertook in order to become qualified as a I'm curious, and as you look at that and you look at your careers, how does that play in your ability to save for financial independence? You obviously have a unique career as a government official, um, and, and I'm curious, if you stayed on the path you are from a savings perspective now, could you achieve your retirement goals, or are you banking on bigger paydays to come to achieve that? Well, it would be a bit of a stretch for us, candidly. So, uh, uh, you know, we uh, uh, obviously when you're in public office, uh, you're not counting on that being a career. At least I, I think you shouldn't. Um, but, uh, you know, in order, for example, in my particular case, uh, in order to for my uh, defined contribution, defined benefit retirement to kick in and vest, I would need to be in office for 10 years, which uh, isn't in the cards. I've decided to be a two-term mayor, and that's about it. Um, you know, I've gone through periods where I had no income at all because uh, I was a full-time candidate. Uh, at that time, I was able to use uh, reserve income as uh, a naval officer to uh, supplement that just a little bit, but uh, created uh, some unique challenges. You know, we talk a lot about uh, using uh, debt and financial planning to do smoothing, to try to smooth your income over time. Uh, when you're uh, uh, not independently wealthy and you choose public service, uh, your income's about as spiky as it gets sometimes. And, uh, you know, frankly, we're contemplating that for the future, too, if uh, we're looking at a period where, once again, for some period of time, I'm a full-time candidate. I'm currently obsessed with financial fragility, and I feel like mm-hmm. for Americans of every income level, it's a real thing. And I, I wonder, during that period of time you're running for state treasurer, um, when you were you know, considering, am I going to finance my life on credit cards? 
was that the most financial stress you've ever personally been in? And and how do you think, and I'm not trying to get you to compare it, Pete, to you know, what Americans' financial fragility, I'm, I'm just curious as to like how you, how you think of the two, the worst you've ever been, and then what it feels like to have $150,000 in medical bills. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to compare my situation to others because uh, everyone's a little bit different, but I can certainly relate to the situation of uh, seeing the debt grow faster than your cash, even when you're trying to live a very reasonable lifestyle, uh, and asking yourself uh, what you would do if your plans don't pan out. Uh, you know, I had saved enough that that was able to get me through the first part of my period as a full-time candidate, but eventually I had to rely on credit card debt as well. Uh, and then uh, once I uh, had happily won an election and, and had this job, I was able to uh, chip away at that and bring that back down uh, to where I could start saving again. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the real thing, and fragility is a good term, uh, the real thing to worry about is, uh, if you get a curveball, if I had had an unexpected illness, if uh, something had made it impossible for me to continue seeking or to take office, if uh, uh, some unexpected financial shock had come my way, uh, you know, so many Americans are living uh, within just one or two mishaps of uh, a financial hole opening up that they would not be able to dig themselves out of. And, uh, you know, we need to start making policies that are more sensitive to that and uh, uh, more commonsensical about uh, creating the financial resilience that would allow ordinary Americans to weather those shocks more readily. One of the more poignant sections of your new book, Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge in a Model for America's Future, is when you talked about the hard waste collection jobs that the city of South Bend had to eliminate because of technological advances. Now, those folks were offered other positions within the city. My question, Pete, is in the next decade or so, how can Americans be prepared for these technological efficiencies eliminating these old blue-collar jobs? And, like, what are people to do? Well, the biggest thing we have to realize is that uh, it's increasingly going to be true, especially for people in my generation, that we may find ourselves changing not only jobs but careers more often than our parents change jobs uh, or even employers. Uh, this is a trend that's only going to accelerate, and frankly, it's not confined to blue-collar positions either. Uh, you know, there are a number of positions in medicine, increasingly perhaps even accounting and law, that are subject to automation. Now, the good news is, uh, overall, macroeconomically, it looks like many of these technological trends will create as many jobs uh, as they do away with. The question is, uh, how can any one individual be ready to succeed in that environment? And uh, we as a country, I think, need to do a much better job of equipping people with the skills that are going to work across different disciplines. You know, uh, if you're uh, on, a, on a factory floor right now as it, uh, manufacturing becomes more and more advanced, the parts of your job that matter most and the parts of your job that are going to uh, serve you well even in a different career are things like problem solving, critical thinking, interpersonal interaction, upward and, and, and lateral management. Uh, they're not necessarily individual technical skills. We've got to teach those too, but those are going to be changing at a faster and faster pace. Now, you grew up in a college town in South Bend. Your, your parents were professors at Notre Dame. You went to Harvard. You're a Rhodes Scholar. But I wonder, in today's environment in America, is college oversold to too many high school students? Because, frankly, in the work that we do here in my office, Pete, um, we're picking up the pieces of, of broken dreams of education that are too expensive. Your thoughts on that? Well, uh, it's not for everybody. And, uh, you know, many of the most intelligent and capable people I work with in the city workforce are not necessarily uh, college graduates. So I, I do think in our, uh, in our haste to make sure we were a country where everybody who 
wants to and ought to go to college has the opportunity. We may have taken our eye off the ball of making sure that we also show a lot of regard uh, for uh, education that's outside of the university system, technical education, uh, and the kind of training associated with getting ready to go into the workforce more quickly. That being said, you know, college isn't just about creating workers. It's also about helping us grow as citizens. And uh, one thing we're focusing on in South Bend right now is lifelong learning uh, that accounts for everything from on-the-job training to uh, college to uh, things that currently aren't officially considered education but probably ought to, like the skills you might learn uh, from a relative around how to do a particular process uh, in the home or language skills. And uh, find a, a way to credential all of those, something like a, a sort of life transcript uh, to capture all of the unique skills and capabilities that individuals get, because in this changing world, it's more and more difficult to predict in advance which of those skills will be the most relevant. Now, your husband, Chaston, tells me that in terms of sharing a household budget, you're a pretty good partner, that occasionally you spend too much money on books, but you don't give him too much trouble on uh, itemizing his target <laughs> trips. I wonder, in the 30 seconds we have left, what's it been like as, as a man com combining your finances with another person? I mean, that's what Americans deal with every day in relationships. I think for any couple, it's really challenging. And the most important thing is communication. You know, uh, what really causes, uh, I think, stress in, uh, in any marriage when it comes to finances is surprise. Uh, if you know something's coming or, or you have a, a view about uh, a plan or something you'd like to do, then, then you can communicate about it and prepare for it. Uh, it's when uh, sometimes maybe uh, out of discomfort, uh, one partner hesitates to share uh, with another when uh, when bills are getting out of hand or when there's a big expense coming up, uh, you're always better off, even if it's uncomfortable, bringing it up, sitting down and talking about it, than letting it uh, bite you later and cause a surprise. Well, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, presidential candidate for the United States of America, and the person who's been in my ear on my trip home from Orlando this week, listening to his audiobook, Safe Travels on Your Road, Mayor, and thanks so much for joining us on the program. Sure thing. Pleasure to be with you. Coming up after the break, uh, an analysis of our talk with uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. You're listening to the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner Show. Yeah, so that was the first time I've talked to a presidential candidate. And I know what you're thinking. Wow, impressive guy. I agree. I thought he did a great job. <laughs> uh, so it was Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I couldn't get it. I thought, you know, on some level, I thought, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to get like four segments with him. But he was very generous with his time. He did Stephen Colbert last night. He did a lot of work in New York today. And he was very generous to uh, spend time with us before he jumped on the plane. You know, I welcome to the program now a gentleman who's been sitting in the studio with me, uh, journalist, writer, Adam Wren. Uh, Adam, uh, describe to my, my friends here. Um, You've seen your work in Politico, Indianapolis Monthly, where, in Portonville, the great uh, Indiana-centric newsletter on politics. Where else can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Adam Wren, and um, that, those are pretty much all the, the home spots for me. No, those are good. So, um, all right, Adam, uh, thoughts? The, the point of having him was uh, Mayor Buttigieg on was, was not to, like, is he a good candidate for president? Don't care about that. I just want to know if the people who potentially could be the leader of the free world truly understand our financial lives. Do you think Mayor Pete delivered on, on that idea? 
You know, as a journalist, one of the things that fascinates me about Pete Buttigieg is that when you look at the 2020 Democratic field, he's one of the few who doesn't have a, you know, 200000 or, you know, $150,000 salary as a member of Senate um, or as, you know, a private business owner or someone like Howard Schultz. Uh, he's someone who very much uh, talks about living a middle-class lifestyle. Uh, his mortgage, as he mentioned, is $800 a month. Uh, he has, he lives in a fixer-upper uh, that I visited when I reported on him in South Bend last fall. He's fascinating, and he can sort of, you know, make an authentic pitch. When he was with voters in Ankeny, Iowa, last Friday, he talked a lot about uh, how student loans, his husband's student loans, have impacted him and have impacted their finances. And he's really running as sort of a millennial candidate. Uh, at 37, he would be the youngest person ever to, to hold the office. And he talks a, a lot about this issue that he calls generational justice. And, you know, the student loan bubble, so to speak, is, is really impacting him and impacting others. And that's something that in his pitch to voters that he has cited frequently. Now, this is a tough show to do for me because I don't like uh, my, my audience expects my opinion. This is an opinion based show. And I think sometimes on the shows like this, they, they are expecting me to give my opinion as to whether I think he's a good candidate. That's not what I want to do. Instead, you know, I've been reading his book via my ears, Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge and a Model for America's Future. I just like learning about people. I like learning about their stories. I find him fascinating. I find him incredibly intelligent. He went to Harvard. He was a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, in his book, I don't know much about being a Rhodes Scholar, as you can imagine uh, when you look at my LinkedIn profile. Um, and Adam, like he, him just describing what it's like to be a Rhodes Scholar and what's the point of, of the exercise. And then what he did with that education, going to McKinsey for a couple of years to, to do management consulting. I just haven't seen anyone like this run for president in a while, you know? Yeah, he's he's a fascinating character to me, and I can you know say that as a journalist, my job is to find interesting trends in people and to follow them. Um, and he's someone who has captured my uh, attention. Um, we'll see what happens with his presidential campaign. By all accounts, it's it's a long shot. But he's interesting to me um, outside of politics as sort of a, a social cultural figure. Uh, he's he's a millennial who has found his voice. He's written. Uh, by all accounts, what is a compelling memoir? Uh, the New York Times uh, and others have have compared it to Obama's book, uh, Dreams from My Father. And I think of Obama's uh, personal story uh, when I think about the interview that you just did with Pete. In that, both of them, you know, sort of carried student loan debt um, in their time in office. Um, and that's sort of a unique phenomenon when you think about the history of student loans. Um, so, so they are two characters who have had to deal with a challenge that uh, a lot of uh, people in America are dealing with right now, myself included. So I'm interested to hear you know, his thoughts on, on personal finance. And, and again, a lot of people that we're seeing jump into the race are sort of uh, you know, coastal figures, people like Cory Booker, people like Kamala Harris. Uh, and so it's interesting to hear someone from middle America talk about their finances and their budget and how they think through decisions, whether it's buying books from Amazon.com or having your spouse make uh, excessive purchases at Target, which is something that I can relate to as well. Me too. Um, so it's, interesting to, it's, it's in interesting to hear him sort of pull back that calculus. I also think we're at a moment in life right now 
uh, with people like Beta O'Rourke, uh, you know, sort of making themselves more transparent, whether they're at the dentist office getting dental work done or whether they're blogging on medium.com uh, about their travels. I think, you know, one of the things Pete Buttigieg is trying to do is to show a certain level of authenticity, which he, he sort of did, I think, on your interview, talking about, you know, debt, talking about um, his mortgage and, you know, living on, on credit for a time. He fascinates me. Um, he fascinates me because he feels real. Uh, my wife uh, is, is a big fan of politics, and so she was listening to an interview the other day with someone. I'm gonna. I don't know who it was. Just take someone, everybody. It was someone who was uh, both on John Edwards' campaign and Barack Obama's campaign, and she said when it came to policy. Uh, in John Edwards' campaign, what they do, what they would bring in consultants and find what positions they should take based on the popularity of the opinion, and that's what John Edwards would take as their opinion, uh, his opinion. And then in Barack Obama's campaign, it all came from Obama. It was Obama. These are Obama's thoughts. This is what we're doing. And in the same respect, that's exactly what President Trump is doing. President Trump is saying, "I don't really care what is popular policy. This is what I want." It seems to me, uh, in this this line of thinking, Mayor Buttigieg, Mayor Pete. Seems like it's going to be his policy, if this is his thing, is coming from him. He's not talking to consultants. Yeah, one of the things that struck me when I profiled him for Indianapolis Monthly recently was that his campaign manager is his high school friend, uh, Mike Schmoll. He was a junior um, at the private Catholic school they both attended when, when Pete was a senior and ran for senior class president. Um, and so to, it, it's almost like a buddy comedy. It's almost like their relationship was written by Aaron Sorkin. Um, you know, you, uh, sort of a Leo McGarry, President Bartlett sort of relationship. Uh, but he really does, uh, I, I think one of his contributions to the presidential field when all is said and done, whether or not he wins or depending on how deep he goes in the primary process, is going to be that he's sort of moved the conversation uh, in the public debate about how people in middle America relate to issues. He is, is you know, made the, the point in several recent interviews, including on Morning Joe, that, uh, you know, the center of American politics isn't necessarily the point between Democrats and Republicans, uh, that the center of American politics is actually somewhat uh, to the left of what a lot of people expect. But yet he has a way of talking about you know fiscal issues, whether it's his personal budget or the nation's budget, in a way that sort of... Uh, sounds Republican almost. I mean, as he talked to you, I was struck by sort of his personal fiscal conservatism and the way that he manages his budget, you know, living on less than he makes. I think that's an interesting uh, thing about him. Yeah, we are based in central Indiana here. And so for my central Indiana listeners, to me, he reminds me of Mitch Daniels and in in his thoughtfulness uh, in his, it's just his personal nature. Um, and I know a lot of people, uh, that's a throwaway phrase if I've ever heard one. Uh, uh, Mitch Daniels had supporters uh, to, to hopefully run for president, and he didn't, and who knows what the future holds for him. And just so you know, if you listen to the show, um, we are going to try to do this with as many presidential candidates as we can, and we're going to analyze each one of them. So uh, Adam Wren joins me for the rest of the show today. We just talked to Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Coming back with uh, more analysis on our interview, I'm Pete the Planner, and this, this, this is my show. <laughs> the P 
Pete the Planner show here with Adam Wren. Uh, journalists been covering the Pete Buttigieg uh, campaign. Adam's sitting in studio with me. Just finished our interview with presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg. I encourage you, if you missed that interview, I don't want to say you missed the good part because Adam's here and it seems rude, but go find it on my podcast, The Pete the Planner Show. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, but that may not be true. I've messed up some of the settings, so just go to iTunes. Okay, so um, Adam, I feel like Mayor Pete, from just uh, consuming his book via audio in the last several days, Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge and a Model for America's Future, which, by the way, is the number one best-selling book on housing and urban development on amazon.com <laughs> it's a competitive category he's got this fixer upper mentality that is pervasive throughout his life he purchased a foreclosed home which he he you know it, there was holes in the porch and there was termites and like all this other crap he and uh, his husband chastin fixed it up he bought an old grand piano from an elderly uh man i believe in in chicago and, and fixed it up and he, he drove a crappy ford Taurus like most of us have and, and and just dealt with it he's helped fix up south bend um and they have two rescue dogs what is it to say about someone's personality that sees value in all things and what those things could be? You know, he talks about himself as a progressive, politically speaking. But in a lot of ways, in spending time with him and the way that he frames issues, he does so from a classically conservative approach. And when I say conservative, I mean conservation. Um, he takes things that are handed to, the, to him and tries to uh, conserve them and steward them in a way that uh, makes them appreciate, uh, whether culturally or financially. Um, the way that he sort of focuses on um, South Bend government is fascinating to me. The way that he thinks of things in a um, in sort of a uh, in fiscal terms. I mean, his training at McKinsey really still sticks with him. Um, he talks about in his book, as you've read, uh, you know, sitting and, and working on a database in his computer in a conference room on, on Canadian grocery store prices. And he, he approaches government in that way. He approaches his own life in that way. He tries to find assets that are undervalued and invests in them and uh, improves them over time. Yeah, it is interesting. One of my favorite parts of the book is uh, he's a, a management consultant for McKinsey. Uh, by the way, if you've ever seen the show House of Lies with Don Cheadle on Showtime, it's the greatest uh, sort of weird, inappropriate sitcom you can see on management consultants. Anyway, no one cares. Uh, one of their projects was uh, grocery prices as a Canadian grocery store. And, and it's fascinating to know that he knows more about Canadian grocery prices than any candidate in presidential history. That's fascinating. Yeah, you, when you look, you know, not even talking politically here, but when you look at someone like President Trump who has said that it, you have to have your ID to buy groceries, um, it's <laughs> interesting to kind of compare that to, to, of that to Pete Buttigieg's experience. You know, he probably uh, could tell you the cost of a box of, of cereal. Um, he he knows um, how much things are. He knows how much things are in Middle America in, in a place like South Bend. Uh, you know, he shops at Costco up there. Um, I don't know how many presidential candidates uh, can say that they that they shop at Costco ahead of the 2020 race. Okay, so let's get to the question that people who are frustrated with this episode are wanting to know if they haven't turned it off already. And by the way, if, if you don't align with this, uh, align with 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 Mayor Pete politically, that, I, I'm not saying I do either. I, we're just trying to understand people. Um, there's a chance, there's an outside chance. I'm going to try to get um, other candidates, not only in the Democratic Party, but um, a certain 
incumbent uh, person in that position. I think I have an outside shot of getting on the show. I'm not promising you President Trump on the show. I just want different people's perspective. Adam, the operative question is this. Does it matter my fetish with how much these folks can relate to you and me? Does that matter or does it just matter to me? You know, I think it does, uh, Pete. I mean, one of the first times you and I talked together ahead of the 2016 race was looking at Marco Rubio's oh, yeah. finances. There were a series of stories about him buying a oh, hot, boat, using using a uh, a book advance to to buy a uh, a high priced speedboat that he had always wanted, um, and also you know having a, a high interest HELOC, um, uh, you know, second mortgage. Um, but I think as a journalist, for me, looking at a candidate's finances is highly revealing yes. to their priorities. Um, I think we need to talk about it more. I think the, the same is true with President Trump. The New York Times has looked at uh, the president's tax returns, has looked at how he built his wealth. I think looking at a candidate's personal finances is remarkably revealing. And I think that we are sort of on the edge here in 2019 on a series of stories that look that looks at how candidates manage their money. I think we're going to see uh, stories like that on Kamala Harris, on Joe Biden. You know, Joe Biden during his time in in the Senate was famously one of the the poorest members of of Congress. Now that's changed recently uh, after his vice presidency, but it, it's remarkable. It tells you a story about how they have lived their life and how they have cr- confronted challenges that a lot of us cha- uh, confront on a daily basis uh, when balancing our personal budgets. They just get this image of Marco Rubio motorboating his way through Florida, <laughs> yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, he, he obviously got his book advance, bought a boat. I mean, terrible idea. Pete Buttigieg uh, <laughs> joked the other night, whether it's true or not, it feels true. His book advance for the book I just read and that you've read they're using it to pay his husband's student loans. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, I was at his book launch event in South Bend um, on Sunday, and he had a small reception for, for family and friends beforehand. Um, and he joked that, you know, I hope you buy this book. This is this is how we're paying uh, Chaston's student loans. Uh, this is also how we're paying for our wedding uh, that they've had more, more than a year ago in South Bend, a wedding that was attended by David Axelrod, uh, former President Obama's sort of chief political advisor um, and message maker. So, uh, you know, he his story is interesting. Um, it's going to get a lot of play in 2020 because he's from the middle of the country. And the only other Midwestern candidate who has announced is uh, uh, Senator, Senator uh, Amy Klobuchar, um, who can kind of make that heartland appeal. So I think it's really interesting to hear about how people who have been outside of the Senate uh, earn money, make money, budget their money. And I'm interested to hear more about some of the some of the other candidates who are f- facing similar challenges. Like you, I am fascinated with the personal finances of our, our government leaders. My favorite politician ever, simply based on their personal finances, is Richard Luger. Interesting. Uh, when he went to Congress, he made it a point to get rid of all individual holdings that yeah. he had. He didn't have to at the time, but he did it. Um, and he didn't necessarily enrich himself in Congress, but he made a living being... Mm-hmm. Uh, a senator um, on the turn, uh, Vice President Mike Pence's largest asset is his state pension from being um, a government official. And you think about a 30-year career, and your largest asset is a, a an entitlement program, uh, if you want to call a pension that at the state level, which sounds terrible and people get angry at. Um, but that's bothersome uh, to me. Um, but then you look at Nancy Pelosi, who has her and her husband have somewhere between 28 and 50 million dollar 
of net worth. And it's like, Adam, what are we, what are we to do with all this information um, of like, I just want someone to make decisions for our country that's reflective of the people living in it. Yeah, I'm really fascinated uh, by um, people like uh, Senator Luger, former Senator Luger, and even former Governor Mitch Daniels. Um, in Pete Buttigieg's office in South Bend, he has you know pictures lining the windowsills, and he has a picture with Senator Luger. He has a picture with Mitch Daniels. There isn't a picture of him and Mike Pence, which is interesting to me. It says a it's lot. It's not that interesting. It's well, pretty obvious. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but the fascinating thing about Mike Pence is he often calls himself as being one of the people from the Jose bank wing of the West Wing. Um, you know, he, he kind of shops for, you know, cheaper suits at Jose Bank. Uh, but he really doesn't have a lot of personal wealth, um, even though for, you know, he spent 12 years in Congress making a considerable amount of money. He spent time making around $98,000 as the governor of Indiana. Um, it's interesting. His, his do- He has student loans on his personal financial disclosure for his, his daughters. Yeah, over 100000 yeah, bucks. Yeah. It's interesting to see kind of the differences between candidates who are kind of publicly conservative uh, and, you know, privately, you know, spendthrifts and vice versa. All right. We got a few seconds left before we go to our final segment. We come back. Here's what we're going to talk about. In Mayor Pete's book, he often references Martin O'Malley, who was the governor of Maryland. I think believe was also the mayor of Baltimore at one point in time, who famously has one of the most notorious personal finance disclosures of all time. We, that's a hell of a tease. I'm going to be honest. That was really good. Coming up after the break, I'm going to tell you what that is. I'm Pete the Planner, and this, this is my show. Back on the Pete the Planner show, you're expecting biggest waste of money of the week, which is traditionally what we do in the fourth segment, but we're blowing it out today. This is the first and hopefully a series of presidential candidates coming on the show and talking about their financial lives. I teased before the break. Oh, by the way, joining me uh, in the studio to analyze this is journalist Adam Wren. I was written for Politico, Indianapolis Monthly, Importantville, which is his great newsletter. I encourage you to subscribe. I have a t-shirt. Um, Adam, that was my disclosure. Adam, one of the most notorious personal finance disclosures of all time was Martin O'Malley's disclosure when he was running in the last presidential cycle, maybe two ago, I don't know, no one cares. Um, He had $339,000 in parent plus loans on his three children. I believe it's three. Now I'm just making things up. That's absurd. Because to me, what that means is, while you see the value in education, no one can afford $339,000 in parent plus loans. Like no one can afford that. That is a bad financial decision um and i'm curious like do you think that matters when we see the marco rubios of the world the martin o'malley's of the world that just make bad personal finance decisions? it's like why would i trust you with that when you don't do that with your money I think it's certainly revealing. And you look at someone like that who has Parent PLUS loans and you ask, you know, I'm a new father. I have a two-month-old daughter. I've just opened up a, a 529 savings account. Uh, for at her. collegechoicedirect.com. <laughs> Sorry. And, um, and, you know, I think about it. What, what, what was Martin O'Malley doing for 20 years before his daughter started to go to college? Now, it's funny because in the book, I mean, Pete really holds Martin O'Malley out as – sort of this beacon for um, like a management consulting approach yeah. to government yeah. who systematized several, several things the, the way Pete had tried, has tried to do in South Bend. And it's funny because the disconnect for me is 
my feeling about his personal finances. You know, I look like I look at someone like Mike Pence, and I realize we all live textured financial lives, and we all start from different starting points in life. But you look at someone like Mike Pence, who talks about being a fiscal conservative, and and you know that he has had decades of a government paycheck, and you know that teachers, uh, for example, are willing to you know save money and pay for their students' college um, education. But you look at Mike Pence, who talks a lot about fiscal conservative. Uh, in saving money, um, and you ask, you know, he has, you know, um, three children, and he's carrying loans for them. Uh, you know, was he thinking about saving personally for their futures at the same time that publicly he was espousing, you know, sort of a fiscally conservative approach? I think I think there are differences between your private life and your public life uh, as a governing official, but it, it does reveal something about their decision-making calculus. I think now would be a good time to point out that you used to be a speechwriter for the GOP. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, you know that's something that I disclosed uh, that, that I disclose um, in conversations. Um, but as a um, you know, for a year after I graduated from from undergrad, um, I worked um, in the Senate GOP here in Indiana, uh, just as sort of a comm staffer. I, I worked as a speechwriter, and the truth of the matter was, I was interested in getting some government experience before going to journalism school and learning how government worked uh, and taking that experience um, into to being a journalist. Uh, a number of uh, respected journalists have have worked in politics. Chuck Todd worked on the Hill. Tim Russert uh, worked. On on the hill before he was in in journalism. Uh, John Heilman, um, uh, can, former. I love John Heilman. Yeah, he worked on the hill as well. I think it's a great way to learn about how politics works. And um, you know, uh, the Republican side had had more jobs than the Democratic side, so I did. Uh, work for a year. Job creators. Those, yeah, that's right. Government. Yeah, uh, so I worked for 33 different Republican senators, some of whom were, you know, more liberal than others, some of whom were more conservative. But during the Daniels administration, I did that, and it was a fascinating education. And I bring that up yeah. for one reason, uh, because a, you know your stuff, and and b, you've seen it from both perspectives. Mm -hmm. Because we are in a binary perspective. I mean, sure, it's just sure. you are one or. You were the other, and you've seen it from both sides, and I think that colors our conversation here today. So I guess let's bust out our crystal ball. We never use it for uh, investment and financial predictions, but let's use it for political um, predictions here. What happens to the Buttigieg campaign? Um, it's He's certainly in the press right now. He made a great appearance on what people call the Pete the Planner show, uh, which might be the low point. It, like, Let's see if his campaign he falls. He warmed up on Stephen Colbert. I know. He warmed up for this appearance. Yeah. So what happens now? Like, uh, like what happens? I, I, I follow this stuff, but I'm, what do you think? Well, the first DNC debates are in June, and they're only taking uh, 20 candidates. They're looking for people who have more than 1% polls in early states like Nevada, Iowa, and South Carolina. And he needs to have $65,000, uh, 65,000 individual donors, small dollar donors, people donating five, ten, twenty dollars to his campaign to meet a threshold. Um, and so he's really, he really has sort of a challenge between now and June um, to to make it onto that debate stage. Uh, by all accounts, during the DNC, during his DNC chair run in 2017, he turned a lot of heads and and by some accounts, you know, maybe beat the current DNC chair Tom Perez and and in a debate setting. He's a formidable debater. Um, he's, he's a formidable speaker, as we just heard in the interview. Very few verbal pauses, thinks fast on his feet. I think if he can make that debate stage, he'll go deeper into the primary process than a lot of people imagine. Um, he's getting 
getting a lot of institutional support from talking heads on on cable news shows. Um, it'll be interesting to see how deep he goes. But it really comes down to him, I think, for for small dollar donors and how much he can increase his name ID. Um, you know, he's taking calls from from. Um, from people like you, and he's he's doing as many interviews as possible. I think to to really boost that name ID. I read through the lines there. Adam. I read through <laughs> the lines. Now, at the risk of angering those that don't appreciate nuance, I want to say this: um, I, I would not call myself a supporter of of him as a candidate. I support him as a person. Um, here, here's the big point: we're about the same age. He and I. Uh, we have a general similar sensibility politically. We share some ideas, not all of them. Um, his husband calls him Peter, and everyone else calls him Pete. My wife calls me Peter, and everyone else calls me Pete. I feel connected to him like I've never felt connected to a person who would represent us on such a big stage. And again, here's the nuance. That doesn't mean I support him. I've just never honestly felt connected to anyone who I'm going to pull a lever for um, conceivably. That's weird. I, I think that's why maybe it, it, people of a different generation you know, boomer voters, you get to vote for people who you understand their lives. I've never had that privilege, and it feels pretty good right now. Yeah. You know, I've gotten a little bit of pushback from people on Twitter asking if I work on a staff. No, uh, I saw that the other but day. But I, you know, I am an, an Indiana-based reporter. Someone in my state is running for the president, and it is uh, my duty, I'm duty-bound, to sort of cover that person as closely as possible. And, you know, I think the goal of journalism is to accurately reflect, reflect and render your subject. Um, and sometimes you cover people who have shady pasts. Some, sometimes you cover people who are road scholars who have served their country. And I think, you know, the, that sort of colors the, the, the coverage. Now, granted, if, if he makes a poor decision at some point, I'm duty-bound to cover that in a fair way. But his story is fascinating to me, and I do think that there's a certain age of a voter here in Indiana, a certain sensibility, you know, they lived in the, in the Donut Counties or in Indianapolis or maybe even South Bend or Bloomington, who see in Pete something of themselves, sort of a scrappy Midwestern underdog um, who's sort of in the middle of this coastal contest. I mean, most other candidates in this race are from the coast, from California, uh, you know, maybe from Texas, but for the most part in the middle of this country, he's someone who I think resonates not only geographic, uh, geographically, but generationally. Yeah, no, that's how I feel. And, you know, I guess, again, for those that choose not to listen to nuance, uh, let me spell it out for you. I'm an independent. I don't affiliate with either party. I love Mitch Daniels. I love Richard Luger. And, and Pete Buttigieg makes sense to me as a person. Uh, as a political figure, I don't know, man. It's just too early. And by the way, who cares what I think? Uh, honestly, if you're listening to this show for my political opinion, find a better show. There's a lot better ones yeah. on that. So, Adam, thanks for sticking around. Thanks uh, for helping us analyze this. Where's the best place for people to find you, Importantville? Yeah, you can go to importantville.com. That's um, I-M-P-O-R-T-A-N-T-V-I-L-L-E.com. Uh, you, you can also go to at Adam Wren on Twitter and find me and my work there. Adam Wren, W-R-E-N, since we're spelling. This right, has like been the, the bird. Yeah, well, sure. Uh, this has been the Pete the Planner Show. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, our political edition, our first one ever. I'm sending you good vibes because good vibes are all that's in my budget. I'm Pete the Planner, and this is my show. Mm -hmm.